0: So tonight, uh, we're in chapter 42 to 45, and honestly, this is just, this is the, the strategic section of the whole story. Anything like tomorrow night, it's just really anticlimactic, other than when Jacob shows up and Joseph gets to be with him, and there's a few... Few interesting things in that. Uh, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That's in the last few chapters, and then all of the children of Israel show up, and then Jacob dies, and Jacob blesses all the kids, and you know Joseph kind of prophetically says, "Take my bones out of here." But tonight, in chapter forty-two to forty-five, you've got this extremely emotional reunion. Of the family, and it's it's tense, it's emotional. As you read the story, I mean, in in kind of preparing, I read the story a number of times. I can't, I can hardly talk about it, but I can't read Judah's speech to Joseph without just getting emotional. The story, these these few uh, uh, chapters are just packed with tension, drama, and emotion. And part of that is the fact that it's family. And we get emotional about family. uh, And we get emotional about family reunions. I used to live in Brea and work at Golden Gate Seminary. One of the reasons I'm not doing that anymore is usually about every Monday, I'd fly to Oakland and I'd come home every Wednesday. So some job like some of you guys have, and I did that enough with the International Mission Board that if I never fly again, I don't care. I don't care. I don't, even if they had a flight from Barstow to Ridgecrest, I'm driving, I don't care. But I loved when I would land in, in Ontario, often I'd come down that escalator and you'd see a family there with a little sign that said, you know, welcome home. And I would just sort of hang out, and I never checked anything because it was just up and back, but I just hang out and watch. Because that's, there's something about that, isn't there? When you, you know, and then as you're going down the escalator, you think, that's who that was on the plane. You know, the young guy with the, with the close-cut hair. And you realize this is a serviceman returning home to his family, and you just want to watch. Because there's, we like that, and we like when families get together. So it's exciting. You know, the, the story in for, chapter 42 to 45 is exciting uh, because it's got that element in it, family, and family getting back together. Uh, just uh, two weeks ago, Sunday morning, we, we had a baptism, and I was hurrying around to get somebody up to baptize. And a, another guy in our church came up, you know, and, and he could see me hustling around. And then he's always, ask, you know, they ask the question, hey, do you have a minute? You know, and you want to go, uh, but I knew the kid, and you know, he's, he's a younger guy, you know, 24 or so, and I said, you I know, said, just a minute, so what, what's going on? He goes, well, last night I found my birth father for the first time, and uh, I've got four siblings that I never even knew about till yesterday, and he just went on. I mean, that, w- what kind of story is that? You know, you just, you just look at the guy and go, my goodness. And that's, that's kind of what's in this story, is it's just the emotion of this family coming back together after there'd been wrongs done and after there'd been years of separation and that you're going to see that happen. The other thing that makes it tense is you've got Jewish brothers... Hebrews going to a foreign country and they're being interrogated by a top official. Now, I don't know, and and I think we miss that sometime. What's happening here? They don't know it's their brother. They don't know that Joseph is the one behind the little headdress and the staff or whatever. They're not aware of that. All they know is some guy that's got power is calling them in. And if you don't understand, that's part of the story. You, you miss a lot of the tension that's going on because they are a nervous wreck. These boys that, are, that are, sh- are men that are showing up asking for food in a foreign country. Uh, we've lived in Jordan and in Sudan, and we actually lived in Cyprus for six months. I don't even count that as living in a foreign country. If you live on a Greek island, you don't get any credit <laughs> for living in a foreign country. Seriously, we shouldn't have even gotten the International Mission Board pay for living in Cyprus after living in Jordan and Sudan. But in Jordan, you enter into the country on a tourist visa usually. You get, a, you get two weeks in, on your visa. After two weeks, you have to go to the police station. When you go to the police station, there's a, a little sign that says for uh, Jordanians, and there's a little sign that says for Ajnabi. That's a foreigner. So you go to the foreigner. And they're going to stamp your passport, and they give you three months. After that three months, guess what you have to do? You have to go to the health department and get an AIDS test. After your AIDS test, you get three more months, and then you have to leave the country and come all the way back in and do the whole thing again. In Sudan, uh, we were actually, we got kicked out of Sudan in 1997, and uh, me and my partner were called into security. And you sit around a table, and the security tells you you have to leave the country. And you say, well, why? And they say, well, we don't have to tell you. And then they ask you other questions like, what were you doing here anyway? And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I can't tell them I was an International Mission Board missionary because we weren't there on a missionary platform. In fact, I hope nobody's recording this because, yeah, because we're in a lot of countries that we're not there on, on missionary platforms. And so they kept asking, you know, what are you really doing here? Why are you here? Why are you really here? And that's, you talk about tents. Man, I was squirming. And that's what's going to happen as Joseph is interrogating the brothers saying, you're here to spy out this land, aren't you? You're here because you're spies. You want to know our weaknesses. That's why you're here. And they're like, no, that's not why we're here. We're here to because we we need food. That's why we've come. But the whole story, those whole both of those sections, are just they're just ripe with tension and emotion. So let's start uh, chapter forty-two. Chapter forty-two: The sons of Israel come to buy grain in Egypt, and Joseph recognizes them, and they don't recognize him. Now, let me, I'll kind of paraphrase part of it just for the sake of time, but the first verse is just so funny. Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Don't you love that line? Why do not you good for nothing, sons? Go do something. There's grain in Egypt. Why are we sitting around here just twiddling our thumbs? Let's go do something. He says, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some so that we may live and not die. So the famine is, is extreme in Canaan. And uh, they get up, the, the sons go, and they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to get some grain. And uh, so verse 5, The sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, from the, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him and their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan, buy." But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered his dreams there in verse 9 which he'd had about them. And he said to them, You're spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said, No. No, we came to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. We're honest men. We're not spies. He says, No, you've come to look at the undefended parts of the land. And they said, No, we're twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man of the land of Canaan. Our youngest is with him, and one is no more. And Joseph said, If it's as you said... Uh, it, if it's as I said to you, your are spies, by this you'll be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you'll go from this place. You will not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. And so he decides that they're going to have to go home and they're going to have to bring the younger brother back. Well, one of the questions you might ask is, you know, why is Joseph so harsh with the brothers? And secondly... You could ask, why is he so easy on him? So now, Joseph, the tables are completely turned. He's not the boy that's down in the pit anymore. In fact, if you want to know what happened in the pit, look down in verse 21, because it's going to be even a little more detail. Oh, and I've even got that one in your notes. While he's lowered into the pit, and they figure this out later because... Um, As he tells them to return, he's going to keep one of them while the brothers go back. Uh, But they give a little more detail. When Joseph's thrown into the pit and sold initially, you don't hear much out of Joseph, do you? But now the brothers say, once they realize that they're in trouble, once they realize they're going to have to leave somebody there, go back and get Benjamin and come back to Egypt, the brothers say, now we know... That we're being punished because of what we did. Verse 21: Truly, we're guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, the distr- this distress has come upon us. We'll come back to that in just a second. But so, so Joseph was pleading with him. It wasn't like he just said. Yes, whatever you'd like to do to me, just lower me down. Oh, no, he's like, don't do this. Don't. Why would you do this to me? What have I done to you guys? And he's just distressed. They lower him down. They sell him. Now the tables are turned. So one thing you might say is, well, why is he being so harsh to his brothers? After all, he's supposed to be a good Christian and everything, isn't he? Well, one reason is he's got to figure out, have they truly changed? And there's some wisdom in if you have been wronged, not just having the status quo the next day. There, there may need to be some time for you to figure out if things now are right. And I think that's one reason why he's doing what he's doing, to find out have these guys changed or if they had the chance, would they still leave him on the side of the road? And in fact, uh, we'll get to it in a couple of chapters. I'm not, you know, we'll we'll get to that when he's he's talking about whether Benjamin's going to stay after he finds the cup with Benjamin. But one thing, one reason why he's so harsh with him, I think, is he's just trying to make sure, are they different? Has anything changed? And again, I think there's some wisdom if you, even for us today. Little theme. If somebody's wronged you, I don't think it's ungodly not to give a little space to make sure you're not going to get thrown under the bus again. Does that make sense? For instance, um, we had a really awkward situation at our church a few years ago. I'm sure nothing like that ever happens here. But uh, we had a lady that was a leader in our church, and she and her husband on our praise team, and um, one uh, Saturday, I knew that there was a little bit of, you know, a little issue in the marriage. Uh, One Saturday, she came by our house and said she was going to leave her husband, and I said, okay, you know, I know what's happening there, and I know that he had been unfaithful, and I said, you know, you, you have grounds biblically. I don't know that you need to make that decision today that you're going to divorce. But I would just say, why don't we meet? Let's let's talk. Let's have a separation. And she's like, okay. And uh, But one of the things she said later was, if I leave him, how long do I have to wait till I go with another guy? So right away there was like flag, you know. Well, about a month later, her husband was on one side of the auditorium and she was on the other side with her boyfriend. And so we had to deal with it. She's a member of our church, she's on our leadership team, and we dealt with it. And uh, the the new boyfriend did a, like a, that was right before emails, and that guy sent out like mass letters to everybody in the church, what a bad guy I was. They left the church, they went, they divorced, and she married the other guy, and they moved away. Well, fast forward like 10 years, I'm preaching down at the Bryant Street Baptist Church in Yukaipa, and who do I see in the back of the room but that lady? And then she says, do you and Merla, my wife, do you guys want to go to lunch? And we're kind of like, I don't know. Like now, you know, today? Well, why don't we do that next week, you know, if you want to come back, you know? So you just kind of play it. A little easy, and uh, you know we did have lunch with her later, and you know at least there's communication even today. That's just been a few years ago, um, but uh, yeah, there's not. I think one reason he's being harsh is he's want to say, are these guys different? Twenty years later, would they still throw me under the bus? And then you can ask yourself, why isn't he harsher? Because now, guess what? Everybody thinks he's dead. He could kill all of them and no one would ever know that Joseph did it. Because Joseph's where? He's dead. That's what they've told. So he could get away with it. Did you ever hear uh, from Plato in the Republic? He's got an interesting story called The Shepherd of Gyges. And it's a story about a guy that there's an earthquake and in the earthquake it opens up and there's a bronze statue of a guy on a horse and on the guy's ring is or on the guy's hand is a ring and this little shepherd finds out if he takes the ring off it's kind of like Lord of the Rings he puts it on if he, and as he turns the ring and plays with it around the campfire the people start talking like he's invisible and so then he decides hey that works pretty good if I can be invisible what can I get away with And so the story goes on where he goes into the kingdom and seduces the queen and takes, you know, just does all kinds of evil stuff. And Plato's point was if people know they're not going to get caught, they'll do anything. And now Joseph's in that situation. He could have just done anything he wanted to do. But why didn't he? Because it was God's plan that he was sent there to preserve these people. Now, does he know that at this particular meeting? I'm not completely sure he knows that right as he's seeing them. He's going to know it in chapter 45, and he's going to say it again in chapter 50. But we might ask, why is he being so easy, or why is he being so hard? Well, once they meet him, and once he tells them, all right, here's the plan. You guys are going to have to go back and get your brother, and then you're going to have to come back. Verse 17, he put him in prison for three days. And um, Reuben, down there in verse 22, Reuben says, hey, didn't I tell you guys? I told you not to do this. You wouldn't listen to me, but you did it anyway. Now we're suffering. And then there's the coolest phrase as he's saying all this and as all of them are admitting now we're getting what we deserve. You ever been in a room where somebody's speaking a foreign language, but you can understand what they're saying? Merle and I love it, especially if we're somewhere like Disneyland and there's some Arab speakers there. They have no clue, you know, that we could even understand until you reply to something they're saying or you laugh at one of their jokes. So, yeah. And they kind of look at you like... And they talk to each other like, how does he know? So... This is so good, verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them, he spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. He knows that they know that they know they were wrong. And when he hears that conversation going on, He begins to weep, and he has to turn away, and then he composes himself, and he says, all right, let's take Simeon. We're going to put him in jail. You guys go. So the brothers return, and uh, they go back. Simeon is held. The brothers return back to to their dad, uh, and the guys realize as they're heading back that something more is going on because Joseph has instructed his helpers, put their money back in the sacks that, you, that they have for their grain. And so they're heading back home. They stop to give the donkeys a little bit of food. And as they open the sack, guess what they find? Their money. And then in verse 38, they say, My money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. Then their hearts sank And they turn, trembling to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Man, we're messed up. So they're beginning to see their whole world come in, and what they're experiencing really is just the consequences of sin. There are consequences to sin. We don't like to think about that, and our world doesn't like to admit that, but there are. There's physical consequences to sin. I... uh, ride to our away football games with a couple that's in my church. They are in their late 40s. Both of them now have pacemakers because the drugs they took until they were in their 30s impacted their body physically. So sometimes there's a physical toll to sin. There's an emotional toll. There's often an economic toll. There's consequences to, there's relational consequences to sin. And these guys are figuring it out. One of my professors at Southwestern was a guy named Jack McGorman, and he was a Greek professor. And uh, I guess I I guess I got a C in that class, but he was he was really more of a just a mentor to all of us, and he was raised on a farm, and I remember him telling us a story about being raised on a farm and the farm having a a bin that held corn. And he said that on the farm, occasionally a rat would get in to the bin and start eating the corn. And so he and his dad would take these rat traps and they would catch the rat, you know, in the trap as it was in the corn bin. And he said he always remembered, never forgot it, that after they caught a rat, that he and his dad would have to take the trap, they would have to boil it, put it in like a boiling pot, and get every piece of the rat off of the trap because he said a second rat would never go into a trap that had a piece of his brother in it. And so they had to totally clean it. And then he would sit with his hands on the desk and he would just say, Oh, oh, if people were as intelligent as rats. (laughs) That how often we watch somebody get into something, and we just follow, and we just follow, and we just follow. Say, it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to me. And it does. And there's consequences to sin. And the boys are figuring this out. Well, they get home, and uh, when they get home, they, uh, they tell their dad what's going on. And a couple of things happen there. Uh, one of them is in verses thirty six to thirty eight, you see Jacob, who is like depressed, he, he just seems like in fact, he stays depressed until um, all the way all the way to chapter forty five verse twenty seven. Check that out. You just look there real quick when they bring news back to Jacob to Jacob and they tell him now hey Simeon is left in Egypt Jacob is depressed and he says you have bereaved me of my children Joseph is no more Simeon is no more and you would take Benjamin all these things are against me I mean he's Jacob's just not going to be the life of the party He's just uh, he's just depressed, and he stays that way. Looked in chapter forty-five, from chapter forty-five all the way to verse twenty-seven, and when they told him all the words of Joseph that he'd spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. Something changed. He knew Joseph was alive. He knew it was going to be all right, and he turns a corner. He's going to be fine. But in the middle of all that, verse 37, Reuben Reuben makes a statement. Oh, you like this guy? This was actually the last time we were in Cairo. This was our guide. And uh, I thought that was a pretty funny picture. It's like he's trying to put sunglasses on the Sphinx. And I was with a lot of Golden Gate students, and they all want to jump in the pictures. You ever seen kids that want to do that? So you've got all these pictures of the pyramids and kids jumping, you know, up in the air. So Reuben, in the middle of all this, he he comes up with an impulsive solution to the whole thing. And uh, you wonder how his children feel about it. Because Reuben says to the father, look, you may put my two sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. (laughs) Put him in my care and I will return him to you. And you wonder if his own boys are in the background going, you know, who's he talking about? Speak for yourself, Dad. But uh, this this impulsive speech, I mean, sometimes we still have trouble with that, don't we? Or impulsive emails or impulsive posts. And some of you still think that God gave you the gift of tongues and it's your job to say whatever's in your mind and speak that, you know, clearly to somebody. But I, I grew up with my mother had a little thing pasted on top of the washer and dryer, and she made me do my own laundry from like the time I was 10. That's probably wrong these days. You could probably, I could probably report her, you know, for something like that. But there was a little sign over the washer and dryer that said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. So maybe Ruben should have known that and just not said anything. But he's trying to console his dad, And uh, that doesn't seem to work. And so the boys are sitting around in chapter 43 trying to figure out what to do. And the famine gets worse. And now Jacob says, Okay, this is about verse 2. You guys need to go back. Judah says, "Um, If we go back, then this guy is going to demand things from us. There's a lot of risk involved. And... Jacob says, well, just go ahead, you know, and go back. And then Jacob says, well, how'd you guys get me into this thing in the first place? And then you have to read from verse 6 to about verse 8. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? So he's like, why'd you tell him you had a little brother in the first place? And look at this. But they said, the man questioned particularly about us. And our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his question. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? It's like, how are we to know that? You think we, you think we left somebody there on purpose? You think we just said, we think, you think we volunteered, you know, all this information? And Judah said to his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, as well as you... And our little ones. So the brothers return to Egypt for more food. And they bring gifts for the man. You can see that in chapter 43 beginning in verse 11. They decide uh, to take stuff back for the man to sort of appease him. And uh, they head back to Egypt. Now chapter 43 verse 16. When they get there, they're going to have a meal with Joseph. And this is another part of the story that's it's tense, but it's a little comical. So Joseph sees Benjamin and um, does, there's no, no reaction at that point other than he tells the steward, prepare a meal. I'm going to have a meal with these guys at noon. Now the brothers begin, you can, you can cut their tension with a knife now. The brothers are really nervous. And they go to the steward of the house. And the, and the brothers say, um, if, there's, if this has anything to do with uh, what we have done before, we brought the stuff back. And look, at, look in verse 18. The brothers are afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us, to fall upon us, take us for slaves, and what else? With our donkeys. This shows what hicks they really are. Like Joseph needs their donkeys. But you know, they're coming out of Cana. They're not from the big city. They're not from a big empire like Egypt. And what they're concerned about is he wants to make us slaves. And we've got some pretty good donkeys out there. I bet... I bet he wants those donkeys. So they tell the steward at the door, you know, if this has anything to do with what happened before, look, we brought back twice as much money. And the steward tells them, chapter 43, verse 23, be at ease, don't be afraid, your God uh, and the God of your fathers given your treasure back in your sacks. And so they... uh, they have this meal but they dine separately from Joseph which is not unusual even today in the middle east merle and i've had meals where we've had meals where i went with the men and she went with the women we've had meals where it was just us and our family in a room while the other family served us so there's awkward things that can happen but this one is the way it is because it says that verse, uh, look down, verse 32, chapter 44, 32, that eating with a Hebrew was loathsome. That's a great word, isn't it? Use that on your friends. That's just loathsome to me. It's loathsome. In fact, that word's going to come up again when, and tomorrow when the uh, children of Israel come into the land and Joseph is going to brief them on how, do you, how things work in Egypt. Because remember last night, he's culturally adapt. He knows the rules. And so he's not going to break the rule right now and have a loathsome dinner with somebody. And when the children of Israel come and they bring their sheep and their cattle, he says, when Pharaoh asks you what you guys do, tell them that you're herdsmen. So he's he basically saying, don't tell him everything. And that's what we had to do all the time in the Middle East. And while I was sitting in that security office when they were asking me what I did, and I said, well, we do schools and relief projects in eastern Sudan. He says, what do you really do? And what he, what he wanted me to say is, I get a check from the International Mission Board. But I wasn't going to say that. I just kept my line. I do schools. So I'm telling the truth. So Joseph says, tell Pharaoh that you guys are herdsmen. Why? Because, the, because shepherding sheep was loathsome to the Egyptians. You're going to see that word come up again. So, took a long route on that, didn't I? Uh, so the in verse, uh, chapter 43, Joseph seats the fellas in chronological order, and they're looking around going, This is a weird coincidence, isn't it? We're seated from the oldest to the youngest. He brings them stuff from his table, and he brings Benjamin more than the rest. And then, in chapter 44, he says, all right, now it's time to go. And so you guys are going to get on the donkeys, and you're going to take your sacks, and at first light, you're going to go. And so they head out. There's only The only thing going on, though, is there's one final trick that's about to be played on them, the ultimate trick. And this is where I'm wondering, even at this point, is it Joseph's desire to just save Benjamin? Because think about it. What's going to happen now is he gives them their sack with their grain, And he puts the money back in everybody's sack. But he takes his cup. And he sticks that in Benjamin's sack. And then later on when they come back. He's going to find that. And the deal is going to be. I will take the guy. Okay so let's just keep going with the story. Alright. So. they, They get their sacks. They get on their donkeys. They head back to Jacob. And. It's, it's, so, it's, it's such a bad trick that it says that right as they got to the edge of the city. So you can imagine these, these guys. They're on their donkeys, you know, come on, you know, looking around and it's the light's coming up so they're heading east. They're heading into the sun and they get just to the edge of town and they're looking back and they're like, whew, we made it. We got, we've got Simeon, Benjamin's with us. We're on the edge of town. Don't you kind of judge things like that? You think, if I could just get out of town, I think I've got it. Then Joseph tells his steward, hunt them down and bring them back and say, how could you return good for evil and haul those guys back to me? And so he does. And in chapter 44, verse 1 to 13, oh, yeah, we're going we're getting there. Chapter forty-four, one to thirteen. He uh, they overtake him in verse six, and uh, they accuse them of you know of stealing something, and they said no, you know we're not we 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 haven't done anything like that, and um, they get back, and they said look okay whoever took it, then they can be your slave. And so they began to look through their stuff. Behold, uh, so let's just start in verse 6. He overtook them and spoke these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sex we brought back to you. Why would we steal anything? So whoever your servants is found, let him die and we'll be your slaves. Let it be according to your word. So then they open everybody's sack and they find in Benjamin's sack he's got the cup. They come back to Joseph's house in verse 14 and while they're there they fall on their face and Joseph says, didn't you guys know somebody like me I would be good at divination. I would be able to tell that you guys had taken all of this stuff. And uh, Judah is again saying, look, God's found out the iniquity of our servants. Behold, we're my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possessions the cup has been found. But far be it from me to do this, the man in whose possession the cup has been found. He shall be my slave, but as for you, go in peace to your father. So even at that point, here's here's a question. I'm not saying I, I, I know the answer. But the question may be, even at this point, is Joseph thinking, I may just save Benjamin and let the rest of the guys go? Because he says, all right, the deal is going to be the guy who had the cup. He can stay here and be my slave. The rest of you guys go. So do you see that? That's what's happening in verse 13. Now verse 14, or chapter, chapter 44, verse 14, and beginning in verse 18 especially, starts this impassioned plea to substitute Judah for Benjamin. And this this is just the most incredible part of the story, I think. Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. So they're going to step aside and they're going to have a private meeting. Judah and Joseph. And Judah is the one who was willing to throw Joseph under the bus. He's the one that said, let's just sell him. Why should we kill him? Let's just sell him off. So now Judah approaches Joseph, and he speaks in his ear, and he says, don't be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down. Or, uh, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. And I said, Surely he's torn in pieces, and I've not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, harm befalls him. You will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will come about... When he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame Therefore, my father, for, before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up to his brothers. For how can I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? And when Joseph, then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, and he cried, have everyone... Go out of the room from me. He knows now that these are not the same brothers that he left. And he knows that Judah has repented. And that repentance is demonstrated by word and by deed. And that's a theme. Repentance is demonstrated by word and by deed. When you come to Christ, that's made known not just by your testimony but by the way you behave. It was the old preacher Spurgeon that said, when a man comes to Christ, the, hu- the, the wife gets a better husband, the kids get a better parent, the employer gets a better employee, and the dog gets a better master. And that's it. Repentance is demonstrated by word and by deed. And sometimes we're pretty good at segmenting our life, aren't we? we'll do church really well, and then we go back out to wherever we work, or we go to school, or whatever, and then that's another segment. We don't really have to do that there. We're pretty good sometimes at wearing the T-shirts. I remember when uh, I was a kid, we'd go to Yosemite. How do you guys get to Yosemite from here anyway? Do you go the back way, or do you go around of time of year and where you want to go, I guess? But remember, they used to have those shirts that said, Go climb a rock, Yosemite Mountaineering School. I thought those were the, cu- the the coolest shirts. So I got a shirt. I wore it. I didn't know how to climb any rocks. I don't even want to climb any rocks. That looks, that looks dangerous. But I was pretty good wearing the shirt. Looked like it. But I, nothing about me said that I knew how to do anything about that. I'm doing some stuff on grace when i get back to barstow i just wanted to read you this and then i'll i think i'm i'm almost i'll cut to the end here before long Um, so talking about talking about repentance is demonstrated by word and deed Uh, when i was in seminary years ago that's the dark ages before we had computers yeah remember that you had to actually go to the library and look up books One of the guys I really got interested in was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think I liked him because he was a theologian, but he was a pastor. So he wasn't just a guy that sat in a room. He did it, you know. And uh, this little book, The Cost of Discipleship, had a big impact on me. Let me just read you a little bit. He talks about the difference between cheap and costly grace. And he said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. "'Communion without confession. "'Absolution without personal confession. "'Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, "'grace without the cross, "'grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. "'Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. "'For the sake of it, "'a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. "'It's the pearl of great price to buy, "'which the merchant will sell all his goods.'" It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Joseph sees that these guys are different. And um, he begins to weep. And chapter 45 is the conclusion of all that. The tension is resolved. And he tells his brothers, I am Joseph, verse 3. Is my father still alive? But the brothers couldn't answer him. They're just there going, What? Are you kidding? I'm Joseph. I'm telling you, look. Look at me. And then verse 5, Don't be grieved. Don't be angry. All of the pieces now have come together and everything begins to make sense and he says, God sent me here to keep you guys alive. That's it. Don't be angry with yourself. Don't, don't worry. God had a plan in all of that. And that's what it was. And you know, sometimes we see things like that in our own life and we can see the pieces. We've talked about that. And sometimes we still don't see the pieces. I've got a friend, one of the guys I showed you in a slide the other day. Uh, My friend Karzan, who um, was in northern Iraq, he worked with us, he got shot in the face. Uh, He was from that village of Sinjar that you've seen about on the news. And we got him back to Jordan, got him back to have surgery in Jordan, and eventually he and his family immigrated to Sweden. And if you think about it now, the best thing that ever happened to him is he got shot in the face. At that point, he didn't know it. But after he got shot in the face, he was riding in a bus. People just left him on the road in his village in Sinjar because he was a believer. So a bus picked him up, and that bus took him to Mussel. And he said, riding in the back of the bus, Jesus sat there and held his hand while he was riding in the back of the bus. And Jesus told him, you're not going to die. And he rode all the way with him to Mussel. This is what he said. And we got him to, we flew him in about four days later to Jordan. He had surgery on his jaw, still has nerve damage on his jaw, and the bullet had lodged in his tongue. And that took about three or four years for him to get over that, and he moved back to northern Iraq, and then finally he and his family immigrated to Sweden, and he's coming to America on October the 3rd. The best thing that ever happened to him was what? Getting shot. Because if he wouldn't have gotten shot he would have been on Jebel Sinjar with ISIS up there right now, killing him. So sometimes you look back and you're able to say, yeah, this I know why that happened. I don't know why. I still can't say why some of our other missionaries got killed in northern Iraq. You know, on one day, we lost four missionaries in a in a shooting in, in Musul. This was in 2003. And they were kind of connected to this guy. I don't know why that happened. But sometimes... Things happen and they make sense and Joseph's put all of the pieces together and now he doesn't see through a glass dimly. He sees clearly. And then a couple of more quick things. Getting the children of Israel into Egypt is as big a miracle as getting them out will be. All of that from chapter 37 to chapter 50 is all about getting people and preserving God's plan and moving them forward. God's headed to the finish line, his plan in history is going to be fulfilled. And it still is. I don't know about you, but I, our world is weird right now. And, you know, I listened today and saw news on what we're planning to do in the Middle East. That's a weird strategy. I don't know where you are politically, and I don't, I don't think it's a political issue. I live there. It's, it's weird to think we're going to arm rebels in Syria to fight the Islamic State of Syria and the Levant. And the rebels we're arming are kind of Al-Qaeda people, and they're fighting guys that are worse than Al-Qaeda. And then probably after they fight them, they're going to take that stuff and, and fight us. And you just kind of go, I don't understand. And then you see that we're going to send troops to West Africa to deal with Ebola. Okay, That's, that makes sense. I mean, you just kind of watch the world and you just think, can it, it's just crazy. And there's times where you just think, this thing's just weird, it's out of control. And then it, and the reality, though, is, guess what? God's not, God's not surprised by any of it. It's not, he's not shocked going, whew, never saw that one coming, you know, because his plan and his goal is going to be fulfilled. And just like he moved all of the children of Israel into Egypt, he's going to move them all out so that they can go back into the promised land. And that's his plan. And that's God. God's plan is going to happen. God's not surprised by your circumstances. And as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, isn't it cool to know you can rest and you can trust in that? And you can hang on to seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And you can hang on that we know without a dream, without any sort of weird revelation, but from God's sure infallible, inerrant word that we can know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All right, well, just bow your head for just a second. And um, before the group comes back and sings uh, tonight, just a couple of things. Maybe um, maybe some of you this evening... Um, just need to come to a place in your life uh, where there's, there's stuff in your life uh, that you know doesn't need to be there. And right now you just need to confess that to the Lord just in your heart and just say, God, I need to get that right with you. I've been carrying that around uh, like these brothers. I've carried around stuff in my heart for years, and I just want to confess that to you. Maybe some of you that are in the middle of a battle uh, going on in your heart and you just need to to make a statement in your heart to the Lord that says, Lord, I don't understand all this right now but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to lean on you and I'm going to lean on your word. Let me pray and then after that I think we're going to just be led in in song again and I'll turn it back over to, to Pastor Bill. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for uh, just the hope that we get from this story. Thank you that you love us, that your grace is enough, that you forgive us, that you receive us, and that we can hope in you, and that nothing going on is a surprise to you, and that your, your purpose and your plan is going to be fulfilled. Thank you for this night, we pray in Jesus' name.